two things for you moms. Uh, the first is chocolate. So all the women in the church, not just the moms, all the women, um, get a chocolate bar today. So we did flowers last year. We just figured those die quickly, and this really lasts for a long time. So not necessarily. You're, you're right. You're right. You're totally right. Uh, it might not make it to the car. Um, if you have kids in children's ministry, they will be bringing candy bars to you, moms. So it's a benefit today if you have more than one child, uh, which means you'll be getting more than one candy bar. Um, my second thing for you, moms, is actually some decorating tips. So um, being the, the decorator that I am, I thought I would come and bring you guys some decorating tips. I don't know if you guys um, are aware of this, but there is a new trend in interior decorating that has taken the world by storm. Um, it is... Uh, these cute little signs with little text words on them with cute little sayings. Have you guys seen those? They're usually on like a white background or like cute little gray stained slats of wood. It's taken the world by storm and decorating. I know this. I have proof, experiential proof, because this week I went to Hobby Lobby with my wife. And um, um, we went shopping, and, uh, and, and shopping really isn't the word that I would call going to Hobby Lobby. I would say it's more of like an outing. Um, because you're there for so long. So if someone were to call me and say, hey, Doug, what are you doing tonight? Um, you want to hang out? I'd say, I'm sorry, I can't. I'm booked. Um, they said, what are you doing? Well, we're, we're going on this pilgrimage uh, to this place called Hobby Lobby. I don't know if you've heard of it. Um, it's actually the word that I would describe it as more like wilderness wanderings when you're in Hobby Lobby because you're in there for so long, you start to get parched, you're you get lost. You wonder if you've been down this aisle before. And the whole time, it's like you can see the promised land. The, the, the doors are there, but you can't get there. And then you just start to compromise. Like you go, we went in there to buy a $20 like birdhouse. And after so long, everything just goes out the window. Kelly starts holding stuff up. What do you think about this? I love it. <laughs> Let's get it. Can we get it now? Is that, can we go? Can we get it? I mean, yeah, we, it, it gets to the point finally where it just turns into this. I have a picture that I think just describes describes the whole thing for us. You finally just get to the point where it says, help, wife won't leave. I didn't do that. I, I've always wanted to, but I'm too afraid, so I stole that one from the internet. Um, Back to my point, though, is the cute little signs. Now, my favorite cute little signs, and women, I think you agree with me, are the kitchen ones. They're the best. The kitchen ones are hands down the best. Um, so I have some for you that I wanted to show you. So men, if you get the shopping list ready, Hobby Lobby's closed today, but it'll be open tomorrow. Um, here are some cute signs for you in the kitchen. The first one says this. It says, kitchens are made for bringing families together. Isn't that true? And it's cute, too, right? Kitchens are made for bringing families together. Um, I really like this one. It says, uh, life is short, lick the bowl. <laughs> Amen, right? Amen to that. This one, you might learn something. Stressed is desserts, spelt backwards. So next time you're stressed, just pull that one out and say, we should, yeah, yeah. This one we do in our family. Uh, life is short, eat dessert first. Uh, we practice that when we go out often. This next one is a little dangerous. It says, just beat it. Um, and that one's dangerous because it's, it can cause you to eat and dance at the same time. The next one, however, is my favorite, hands down. It says, I followed my heart. It led me to the fridge. I, I, that is so true for me. That's where my heart leads me every time. 
Um, if you're not a great cook and you're like, oh, I, I can't put these in my kitchen, it's not, some of this isn't true, then maybe this would be for you. It says, uh, many have eaten here, few have died. Um, maybe you want something more spiritual. This would be a more spiritual one for you. This one says, uh, cupcakes are muffins that believed in miracles, which is true as well. Um, in our house, we actually do have two, well, now three, after we went to Hobby Lobby this week, of these signs. Um, one of them is actually a Bible verse. It's from Acts 2. It says, they broke bread together in their homes and ate together with glad and sincere hearts. And that one's over our dining room table. And we have another one that just simply says, gather, just in block words, gather. And I actually like that one the best because isn't that what we do in our homes, around our tables, in our kitchens, is we gather with those that we love, especially on days like today. And so in thinking about Mother's Day, it just made me think of all the fond memories I had at home gathering in the kitchen with, with my mom and it made me think about that. Well, the, probably the most popular kitchen sign that's out there is this one that we've all heard. It says, the kitchen is the heart of the home. And that is so true. All the memories that we have of our home typically revolve around the kitchen and the table. And isn't that true? Isn't that true that the kitchen is the heart of the home? Now, I bring this up not to make a point about the value of your kitchen or home-cooked meals, um, but actually because of our text today. Um, If you were to ask almost anybody who has any understanding of the Old Testament what the book of Ezra is about, they would say the book of Ezra is about the people of Israel leaving the captivity in Babylon that they're in, returning to the land in Jerusalem, and rebuilding the temple. That is what the book of Ezra is about. Seventy years in captivity, God is bringing his people out of captivity back to the land that he promised them, and he's asking them to rebuild the temple. It is a book about rebuilding the temple. And the reason why they returned is to rebuild the temple. This drives me to ask the question, why is the temple so important to Israel? Why does the rebuilding of the temple take precedence over the building of city walls, over the government buildings and fortifications? Why does the temple get done first, and why is the temple so important to Israel and God's people? In my study this week, I came across this quote from a current Jerusalem news website. It said, from a government official, Israel is at the heart of the Jewish people. Jerusalem is at the heart of Israel, and the Temple Mount is at the heart of Jerusalem. To the core of the Jewish people, the heart of their land, of their people, is the Temple. Why? Why is it the Temple? So the kitchen may be the heart of the home, but the temple is the heart of the Jewish people. Why is that the case? What is its purpose for the Jewish people? Why is the completion of the temple so important? Today we're going to try to answer that question. It's going to take us a while to get there, but we're going to answer that. So turn to Ezra 6 with me. While you're turning to Ezra 6, let me just do a short recap of Ezra's 1 through 5. Um, Ezra's 1 through 5 is really all about uh, the Israelites leaving captivity, coming back, and their progress on the temple and the setbacks. So far, all of we've seen is the Jews coming out of, of exile, coming into the land, starting the temple, having some success, facing setbacks, and then we're here in chapter 6. And spoiler alert, chapter 6 is the Jews completing the temple. We finally get the completion of the temple in chapter 6. So let's read chapter 6 together. It's a little long, so stick with me here and I'll read this. Starting in verse 1, it says, Then King Darius issued a decree, and a search was made in the archives where the treasures were stored in Babylon. In Ekbektana, in the fortress, which is in the province of Medea, a scroll was found, and there was written in it as follows, Memorandum. In the first year of King Cyrus, Cyrus the king issued a decree. 
Concerning the house of God in Jerusalem, let the temple, the place where sacrifices are offered, be rebuilt and let its foundations be retained. Its height being 60 cubits and its width 60 cubits. With three layers of huge stones and one layer of timbers. And let the cost be paid from the royal treasury. Also let the gold and silver utensils in the house of God, which Nebuchadnezzar took from the temple in Jerusalem and brought to Babylon, be returned and brought to their places in the temple in Jerusalem. And you shall put them in the house of God. Now, therefore, Tatanai, the governor of the province beyond the river, Shethsar, Bozanai, and your colleagues, the officials of the province beyond the river, keep away from there. Leave this work on the house of God alone. Let the governor of the Jews and the elders of the Jews rebuild this house of God on its site. Moreover, I issue a decree concerning that you are to do for these elders of Judah in the rebuilding of this house of God. The full cost is to be paid to these people from the royal treasury out of the taxes of the provinces beyond the river, and that without delay. Whatever is needed, both young bulls, rams, and lambs for burnt offerings to the God of heaven, and wheat, salt, wine, and anointing oil, as the priests in Jerusalem request, it is to be given to them daily without fail, that they may offer acceptable sacrifices to the God of heaven and pray for the life of the king and his sons. And I issue a decree that any man who violates his edict, a timbler shall be drawn out of his house, and he shall be impaled on it, and his house shall be made a refuse heap on account of this. May the God who has caused his name to dwell there overthrow any king or people who attempts to change it, so as to destroy this house of God in Jerusalem. I, Darius, have issued this decree. Let it be carried out with all diligence. Then Tatanai, the governor of the province beyond the river, Shethsar, Bozani, and their colleagues carried out the decree with all diligence, just as King Darius had sent. And the elders of the Jews were successful in building through the prophesying of Haggai the prophet and Zechariah the son of Edo. And they finished building according to the command of God of Israel and the decree of Cyrus, Darius, and Artaxerxes, king of Persia. This temple was completed on the third day of the month of Adar. It was in the sixth year of the reign of King Darius. And the sons of Israel, the priests, the Levites, and the rest of the exiles celebrated the dedication of the house of God with joy. They offered for the dedication of this temple of God 100 bulls, 200 rams, 400 lambs, and as a sin offering for all Israel, 12 male goats, corresponding to the number of the tribes of Israel. Then they appointed the priests to their divisions and the Levites and their orders for the service of God in Jerusalem, as is written in the book of Moses. The exiles observed the Passover on the 14th of the first month. For the priests and the Levites had purified themselves together. All of them were pure. Then they slaughtered the Passover lamb for all the exiles, both for their brothers, the priests, and for themselves. The sons of Israel who returned from exile and all those who had separated themselves from the impurity of the nations of the land to join them, to seek the Lord their God of Israel, ate the Passover. And they observed the Feast of Unleavened Bread for seven days with joy. For the Lord had caused them to rejoice and had turned the heart of the king of Assyria toward them to encourage them in the work of the house of God, the God of Israel. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. Um, And Lord, we are excited to hear what you have for us this morning through your word. Help us to see in a big picture, Lord, what you're doing uh, through the establishing of the temple and ultimately through your son, Jesus Christ. So we ask that you would open our eyes today as we dive into this passage and open up our hearts. In Jesus' name, amen. I don't know if some of you guys are like me or not, but um, I'm the type of person that likes to take on projects around the house. So if there's a table that needs to be painted, I'm on it. If there is a, uh, a holes in the wall in the bathroom that need to be fixed, I'm on it. The only problem is that I suffer from this problem or disease called never finishing the projects that I start. So I like to start them, but they don't, I don't like to finish them, apparently. Um, 
I think the idea of starting projects sounds good to us all, and we all struggle with finishing because the idea is, oh, yeah, we're going to have this great finished table, but two hours into sanding the thing, your hands are tired, and the kid's got to eat, and the dog's got to go out, and kid's got to go to practice, and all the life happens around you, and this project just seems to go on and on and on. And so days and weeks and months and maybe even years go by, and that table's still sitting in the garage unfinished. that happened to any of you? That happens to me. Now, I would argue... Personally, I would argue that the reason why I don't finish the project I start is because of outside forces that are acting upon me. My kids are bothering me. They've got to go out and do stuff, and I've got to take my dog out, and I've got to go work. All the outside forces are stopping me from finishing my project. Well, my wife would argue that the reason why the project doesn't get finished is because uh, I just get lazy, and I don't want to finish it anymore. Um, while I like my excuse better, my wife is probably accurate, and both are true. To some degree, this is the situation in the book of Ezra. God's people, Israel, are given a task to do, to return to the land to rebuild the temple. However, along the way, they face setbacks, and they simply lack the motivation to complete the task. Same thing. So in chapter 1 of Ezra, you have this proclamation from the king Cyrus, king of Persia, given to the Jews to return to Israel, to return to Jerusalem to rebuild the temple. The thing that the people deeply desired to do In chapter 2, we see those who were faithful to go and return to the land to rebuild the temple. And upon their arrival in chapter 3, they begin to get to work. The first phase of the project is complete. The altar is built. And sacrifices begin to be offered on the altar. This encourages them in their desire to keep building. And so then they lay the foundation stones of the temple, which would have been the most difficult part of the project. These are the largest stones in the temple, the biggest ones carried to the top of the highest mountain in Jerusalem and set perfectly in place for the rest of the temple to be built. Hardest thing. This only motivates them even more. They're excited. They want to continue. Truly, the Lord must be giving them success. They celebrate as the foundation stones are laid. But then in chapter 4, opposition starts from the outside. People come and oppose the exiles that are coming in their task of rebuilding the temple. So in chapter 5, God begins to stir in the hearts of his people once again through the the preaching and the, uh, the prophecies of Haggai and Zechariah to rebuild the temple. Haggai, in particular, makes it very clear, though, that it wasn't just opposition from the outside that was causing them to stop. It was internal motivations from within, their own lack of desire. So if you would turn to Haggai with me. Haggai's only two short chapters, so it's easy to miss. But if you can find Haggai, we're going to start in verse 1 of Haggai 1. It says this in Haggai. In the second year of King Darius, the king... On the first day of the sixth month, the word of the Lord came to the prophet Haggai, to Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, and to Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, saying, Thus says the Lord of hosts, This people says the time has not come, even the time for the house of the Lord to be rebuilt. Then the word of the Lord came by Haggai, the prophet, saying, Is it time for you yourselves to dwell in your paneled houses while this house lies desolate? Now, therefore, thus says the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. Jump down to verse 7. It says, Thus says the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. Go up to the mountains, bring wood, and rebuild the temple, that I may be pleased with it and be glorified, says the Lord. You look for much, but behold, it comes to little when you bring it home. I blow it away. Why, declares the Lord, because my house, which lies desolate, while each 
one of you runs to his own house. Essentially, what Haggai is saying, simply stated, is that the people came with the purpose of rebuilding the temple, but they lost their focus. They came to rebuild God's house for God's glory, and instead began to build their own houses for their own pleasure and comfort. There's much to say about this principle today, but we just simply don't have time, so I'm just going to leave you with this question. Are you personally distracted, neglecting the work that God has called you to do because you're so focused on yourself, so focused on your comfort, so focused on your own pleasures, so focused on your paneled houses that you've forgotten the task to which the Lord has called you to do? Just think about that. In chapter 5 of Ezra, because of the word of the Lord that came to Haggai and Zechariah, the work of the temple starts again. But before anything even happens, it stops once more because a governor in the province comes and starts to question by whose authority these Jews are rebuilding the temple. By whose authority are they doing this work? The Jews respond saying, well, God gave us the authority and so did Cyrus, the king of Persia. So the governor inquires the new king, King Darius, to see if their statement is true. And so in the last verse of chapter 5, it says, Let the king send to us his decision concerning this matter, whether or not they should let the the temple be continued or not. And then we're up to chapter 6. And in chapter 6, we receive the king's response to the inquiry of the governor who is asking if the work should be continued. Remember, this is a different king than gave the first decree. King Cyrus was the king that gave the first decree, and this is King Darius. Okay, There's actually a king in between the two of them that took place. Just so you have an awareness of time, this is about 15 years from the first decree of Cyrus to the second decree of Darius. 15 years went by. So King Darius must make a search in the archives to find this decree, because he doesn't even remember it. It's been so long. So let's take a look at Ezra 6. Verses 1 and 2, what's going on is the search has been made for the decree of Cyrus. And the decree is located. In verses 3 through 5, you have a recap of that decree. 3 through 5 is a recap of Cyrus's initial decree. And then in 6 through 12, we have Darius's additional decree. What Darius now, the new king, is going to decree concerning the temple, his decision in the matter is going to be given. So let's look at verses 6 through 12 at Darius's decree. It says, Now therefore, Tatanai, governor of the province beyond the river, Shethsar Bozani, and your colleagues, the officials of the provinces beyond the river, keep away from there. Leave this work on the house of God alone. Let the governor of the Jews and the elders of the Jews rebuild this house of God on its site. Moreover, I issue a decree concerning what you are to do with these elders of Judah in the rebuilding of this house of God. The full cost is to be paid to these people from the royal treasury out of the taxes of the provinces beyond the river and that without delay. Whatever is needed, both young bulls, rams, and lambs for a burnt offerings to the God of heaven, and wheat, salt, wine, and anointing oil, as the priests in Jerusalem request, it is to be given to them daily without fail, that they may offer acceptable sacrifices to the God of heaven and pray for the life of the king and his sons. I have issued a decree that any man who violates this edict, a timber shall be drawn out of his house, and he shall be impaled on it, and his house shall be made a refuse heap on account of this. May the God who has caused his name to dwell there overthrow any king or people who attempts to change it. As 
so as to destroy this house of God in Jerusalem. I, Darius, have issued this decree. Let it be carried out with all diligence. That is a decree right there. Darius not only affirms what Cyrus has said, but he adds to it. He tells those inquiring, the governor and those inquiring, to leave the Jews alone in their work. Let them do what they're doing. That the full cost, not the partial cost, but the full cost is to be given to them to complete the temple without delay. Immediately. Give them all the money they need to complete the task. Oh, and it's to come from the royal funds. In case you don't understand what this is like, let me try to explain it in modern terms. This would be like if we as a church decided to plant a church down the street and we're trying to raise the funds for this. We've got to get the funds to do the building and to pay the staff and to take care of operations and all the stuff that happens in the church. And um, we're struggling to get this done. And so the President of the United States calls up the Governor of California and demands that the full cost be given to our church to build that site without delay or else. Would that be a miracle? That's what's happening here. That's what's happening here. Darius says, in addition to this, whatever is needed, whatever is needed to complete the project, that's a blank check. Whatever is needed. Give them the full cost of what they need to complete it and do it now. Oh, and then whatever else is needed, give it to them. How often? Daily, without fail. Oh, and if you don't do it, I'm going to rip a two-by-four out of your house and I'm going to impale you on it. I imagine the Jews hearing this for the first time, this decree read in the public square, must have just been like, God has done it. He has made the path clear. There's no way that we're not going to be able to finish this house. They must have been rejoicing hearing this. And I think there's a little bit of Bible humor here because in verse 13, this is what I consider Bible humor, it says, Then Tatani, the governor who's making this request, says, it says, He carries out the decree with all diligence, just as King Darius sent. Well, duh. Uh, if I were told to do something or a two-by-four would be ripped out of my house and I'd be impaled on it, I think I would do it with diligence too. I think that's a little Bible humor. In verses 14 through 18, we see the culmination of what has been happening in the whole book of Ezra up to this point. Six chapters leading up to this moment. And it says in verse 14, The elders of the Jews were successful in building through the prophesying of Haggai the prophet and Zechariah the son of Edo, and they finished building according to the command of God of Israel and the decree of Cyrus, Darius, and Artaxerxes, the king of Persia. This temple was completed on the third day of the month of Adar in the sixth year of the reign of King Darius. All the sons of Israel, the priests, the Levites, and the rest of the exiles celebrated the dedication of the house of God with joy. So in around March of 515 B.C., nearly five years after Darius made his final decree, and about 20 years after King Cyrus did his first decree, the temple is finally complete. And notice that they rightly attribute the work not to the kings, not to themselves, but to God. The whole community had worked on this project, worked on the temple, and had seen God's protection and provision through the whole thing, and so now they celebrated because the work had been completed. The house of God was dedicated in a similar fashion as the first temple was. Remember, this is the second temple. The first temple, which we call Solomon's temple, was dedicated in a similar fashion, but this one was a lot less decadent. It says for Solomon's temple, there was 22,000 cattle, 
and 120,000 sheep and goats that were sacrificed in dedication to the temple for the first temple. Where here we only have 100, 200, and 400. Why the difference? Well, they just recently got back into the land. They didn't have the provisions to do this type of dedication, nor did they have the priestly uh, roles in place to the numbers that they needed to carry out such a sacrifice. But they dedicated the house of the Lord nonetheless and celebrated its dedication. Now, if we leave the story there, that's the basic understanding of what's happening in Ezra 6. If we leave the story there, we can get ourselves into trouble. We could think that this story is just about God's people through trial and adversity accomplishing a difficult task. If we're not careful, we read the story with the Jews as the focus and not God. With the Jews as the main character and not God. In every story in the Old Testament... Israel is not the main character God is. Israel is just the means by which God's glory is revealed. In the whole of the Old Testament, Israel's not the hero God is. Remember that it was God who moved Cyrus's heart. It was God who led his people out of exile. It was God who allowed the altar and the foundation stones to be set. It was God who rose up Haggai and Zechariah to encourage the people. It was God who moved through Darius to set forth his decree. It was God through his provision, through his protection, for, through his directing of kings, through his stirring in the hearts of men, through his movement of nations that this task was completed. God is the main character of the story as he always is. If you get anything out of just this simple understanding of the story, I want it to be this. That God is in control and that he is orchestrating men and kings and nations to accomplish his purposes for his glory. He is orchestrating men and kings and nations to accomplish his purpose for his glory. If you are seeking to make God's glory known, if you are walking in his will, if he has called you to complete a task, you cannot be thwarted by men by bosses or by leaders or by nations or kingdoms you may have setbacks but God will complete that task God is in complete and total control but I think that there's more going on to this story as we read it as New Testament believers looking back there's more than meets the eye and so I want to go back to my initial question this event is clearly a big deal Six whole chapters are given to the task of rebuilding the temple. Why? Why is this so important? And if this is what the book of Ezra is all about, rebuilding of the temple, then shouldn't the story end in chapter 6? If the completing of the temple is the whole goal and point of this story, then the story should be over in chapter 6. But it's not. It keeps going. So that brings me to assume that there's something else going on here. So I ask the question again, why is the rebuilding of the temple so important? And to answer that question, we have to take a very big look at Old Testament history and try to get an understanding of what the temple is and what the purpose of the temple was from the beginning, what the purpose is. And to do so, you have to start all the way back in the beginning. In the beginning, when God created man and woman, Adam and Eve, he created them with a purpose. Their purpose, their ultimate purpose, was to bring glory to God and they were to fulfill that purpose by being obedient to God's commands that he had given them. In order that they may be in right relationship with him. He created with them. He walked with them. He loved them. He provided for them. He was engaged in a relationship with them from the beginning. 
But to keep that relationship going, they had to follow his commands. They had to obey his commands. When they broke God's commands, the relationship with God was broken. No longer is God able to freely roam in the garden with man because the relationship is now broken. Along with the brokenness of the relationship came a curse and a new set of standards that they had to keep in order to restore that relationship with God and be in relationship with Him again. A new set of commands. Fast forwarding a bit, we see God's people who have recently been delivered from Egypt out of the hands of the Egyptians. They're given a formal set of commands, expectations, if they are to maintain their relationship with God as a set-apart nation. As God created man out of the dust of the ground and breathed his presence into man and walked with them in the midst of the garden so God would create a nation for himself out of the land of Egypt, he would give them life, preserve their life, and he promised that he again would dwell with them and be in the midst of them again. At this point, Israel is wandering in the wilderness and they don't have a permanent home, so they're dwelling in tents. So, God also dwells in a tent in the midst of them. A really nice tent, but a tent. The Israelites are commanded to build the tabernacle. A tent that would serve as God's house, his dwelling place among his people in the center of his people. Because his desire is always to dwell in the midst of his people and have a restored relationship with his people from the beginning. When the tabernacle was complete, God's presence through his Shekinah glory, through a cloud, descended on the temple where everybody could see the same presence that he breathed into Adam, the same presence that led the Egyptians out of the land by a pillar of fire and smoke, descended onto the temple so God's presence was visibly and clearly seen. They had confirmation from their own eyes that God is now dwelling in the midst of his people once again. When the Israelites finally inhabited the land and their homes became permanent, God demanded that he have a permanent home as well. So at the top of the holy city of Jerusalem, on the highest mountain, in the best spot, the temple was constructed. It took seven years to complete Solomon's temple, the first temple. And the glory of the Lord, in the form of his Shekinah glory, in the form of a cloud, descended upon the sanctuary of God once again in the same way that it did in the tabernacle upon Solomon's prayer of dedication. God was again visibly seen coming and dwelling in the midst of his people in his temple. This is, of course, until God's people, as they always do, break the covenant with God. And God's glory is seen by the prophet Ezekiel leaving the temple just before the Babylonians come and destroy the first temple. God's glory departs from the temple. And so to answer the question of what is the temple, the temple is at the heart of God's city. It's at the heart of God's people because it's the very place where God dwells with his people. It's the very place where God's presence is there with his people. And it shows us, it shows them that his relationship is with us, that he desires to be in a relationship with us. Now, when the people break covenant faithfulness, when they break covenant law, God's commands, there's a separation that happens between God. So, sacrifices were instituted in the tabernacle and the temple in order to cover the sin so that we can be in right relationship. God's dwelling there, but there's still a barrier because of sin. 
So sacrifices are instituted in order that we can be covered with the blood of sheep or lambs and goats and doves in order that we can be made right in relationship with God again. But many times in the Bible, the sin of God's people is so much that the basic covering of the shedding of a blood of an animal is not enough and so God punishes his people. Slavery in Egypt, 40 years wandered in the wilderness, battles and conquests by the Canaanites and the Philistines, 70 years in exile in Babylon. But each time, God would forgive his people, bring his people back, restore his covenant relationship, and once more God would dwell in the midst of his people, as his desire is always to be in relationship with his people. And so in Ezra, specifically, when the Jews are brought back into the land after the disciplined time of the exile, and were tasked with rebuilding the temple, this was a clear sign to them, understanding biblical history, that their relationship with God was no longer in jeopardy. God must be fulfilling his promise to return and dwell with his people again. And as the temple is completed in Ezra 6, all seems to be made right again. Or does it? What's missing from this equation this time? The patterns remain the same all the way through, but something is missing. This time, when the temple is complete and upon its dedication, absolutely nothing happens. God's presence does not descend into the temple. It does not fill it. So in Ezra 6, you have the last few verses, 19 through 22. They just continue the regular practice of sacrifice. The holy feasts are observed, starting with the first one of Passover and the first month of the year and continuing on. Why is it that God's presence did not descend into the temple? Why would God go through such lengths to call his people out of exile and bring them back into the land to rebuild this house if he was not going to dwell in it? To answer that question, you again have to go to the book of Haggai. It's clear that Haggai's sole mission was to initiate the rebuilding of the temple, and he did so by giving four different commands to the people, four different responses to the people. The first one, he rebukes them for their preoccupation with personal comforts. He says, Stop living in your paneled houses while the house of the Lord lies desolate. Then he calls them to repentance. He calls them to consider their ways. But then he does these two things. He encourages them and unifies them as a community by saying that it's God's intention to overthrow the nations and restore the fortunes of Israel. Okay, that hasn't happened yet. And then he does this in Haggai 2 at the very, very end of the book. Haggai 2, I'll have it on the screen for you. He says this, starting in verse 20. It says, Then the word of the Lord came a second time to Haggai on the 20th, 4th day of the month, saying, Speak to Zerubbabel, the governor of Judah, saying, I'm going to shake the heavens and the earth. I will overthrow the thrones and kingdoms and destroy the powers of the kingdoms of the nations. And I will overthrow the chariots and their riders, and the horses and their riders will go down, everyone by the sword of another. On that day declares the Lord of hosts, I will take you, Zerubbabel, son of Shealtiel, my servant, declares the Lord, and I will make you like a signet ring, for I have chosen you, declares the Lord of hosts. Why is this significant? What is going on here? When God declares Zerubbabel a signet ring, what is God talking about? God is saying that Zerubbabel as a signet ring, what he's indicating is... In Jeremiah 22, Jehoiachin was a king of Israel who was a bad king. 
And God declared in Jeremiah 22 that he was going to take Jehoiakim, the signet ring of God, he was going to take that ring off of his finger and he was going to cast it off so that no king from his line could ever sit on the throne of David. God pronounced a curse on the house of Solomon and the, the, the Davidic line of David, the kingly line of David, that no king would again sit on the throne because of what the kings had done. In Haggai, God is reversing that. He's saying, through you, Zerubbabel, I am going to reinstate the Davidic line. The kingly authority that I took away through Jehoiakim, I am going to give back to you. That's what's being said. So what's happening here, which is interesting, is that God is rekindling a messianic expectation. He's restoring this this idea that there's going to be a Davidic king that rules on the throne. But it's very clear that Zerubbabel is not the one to fulfill this. It says, on that day, I'm going to do all these things. I'm going to have the nations go at one another and we're going to restore, you know, restore Jerusalem to its former glory. That doesn't happen in Zerubbabel's day. So who is this intended for? Well, if you look at Matthew 1, in the genealogy of Jesus, look who shows up here. After the deportation to Babylon, Jehoiakim, which is the other name for Jehoiakim, became the father of Shealtiel, ooh, a name we've just heard, and Shealtiel, the father of Zerubbabel, and Zerubbabel, the father of Abihud, Abihud, the father of Eliakim, and Eliakim, the father of Azor, and Azor, the father of Zadok, and Zadok, the father of Achim, and Achim, the father of Elud, and Elud, the father of Eleazar, Eleazar, the father of Matham, and Matham, the father of Jacob, Jacob, the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, by whom Jesus was born, who is called the Messiah. Jesus is a direct descendant of Zerubbabel. The reason why Zerubbabel did not receive the fulfillment of the promise given in Haggai to reinstate the Davidic line through him, that it would come in fulfillment to him, is because it was never intended for him. It was intended to come through one of his descendants, through Jesus. So let me ask this question again. Why is it that God's presence did not descend on the temple in Ezra? Why would God go through such lengths to call his people out of exile and bring them back to the land to rebuild this house if they were not going to dwell in it? he was not going to dwell in it. Earlier I said that the first temple is usually referred to as Solomon's temple. Well, the temple in Ezra, the second temple, is usually referred to as Herod's temple. Because this is the very temple that stood in Jesus' day. God didn't descend on the temple with his presence as he normally did upon the day of dedication, as was the pattern before. This time he left it empty. Because the next time that God's presence would enter that temple would be when Jesus himself steps foot in that temple. God was creating an expectation for the people in Ezra's day for the Messiah to come. Only 400 years after this is when Jesus comes on the scene. And this time, instead of God's presence descending into the temple like as we'd seen before, this time God's presence goes from heaven to earth, not into the temple, not into the Holy of Holies, but in the person of Jesus Christ into a baby that's born into a manger. And once again, like in the garden, God is going to dwell in the midst of his people and walk around with them, restoring what he wanted to do from the beginning. It says in John 1.14, it says, And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we saw his glory. Glory is the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. That word dwelt is tabernacle, the same word 
of God dwelling with his people. Now Jesus is tabernacling, dwelling with his people in the midst of his people, walking with them. But as it always is and has been, as it was in the garden, every time after, his people would reject him. And a sacrifice would be required to restore the relationship between God and man. But this time, instead of the blood of a goat or a dove, the true Passover lamb would offer up his own life for payment. Our God would see our iniquity and pay for it himself. He would remove the separation between God and man by being forsaken himself. His own blood would cover the payment once and for all. Not a temporary covering, once and for all. It's no surprise to me that in Ezra 6, the first sacrifice that is offered after the temple is dedicated is the Passover feast. And it says the Passover lamb was sacrificed. So to answer the question from the beginning, why the temple? Why is the temple so important? The temple is important to the people of Ezra because the temple was the place where God would dwell with his people and show that he wanted to restore that relationship with his people. That all happened in the temple. But not this temple in Ezra. God had another plan for his presence to dwell with men. He had another means of reconciling his people outside of the physical building of the temple. He had another way of fulfilling his covenant promise to his people outside of the physical building of the temple. And that was through the man Jesus. And so in John 2, Jesus declares himself to be the new temple. Jesus predicts that the second temple is going to be destroyed just a few short years after he is gone. And he was right. And Jesus would replace it. Jesus replaces the temple and becomes the new place which man may meet God and fellowship with God. Matthew tells us where Jesus says, I tell you something greater than the temple is here, referring to himself. As the new temple, instead of making a pilgrimage to Jerusalem to be in the presence of God and to experience God's dwelling with men, now anybody, anywhere, may come to God through Jesus. And so we must ask, how are we to respond to this? Knowing what we know about Jesus and fulfilling this in the temple, how are we to respond? For the people in Ezra's day, God's message was clear through the prophet Haggai. He told them to stop their preoccupation with personal comforts. Repent and take up the work. Be unified as a community. Look to the Messiah. For us today, we need to reverse that order. Look to your Messiah. Look to him with awe and with joy. Let the reality of what he's done for you sink in for you. Let that unify us as a church to a common purpose. We need to be continually repenting of our sin, putting our hope and trust in Jesus, that he has accomplished the work and that we are just along for the ride. And lastly, we're to stop our preoccupation with personal comforts and take up the work that God has done has for us. Just as Jesus is called the temple, so now we, through the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, are called the temple. Let us go out and share the glory of God, the presence of God with all, because that presence dwells within us. If God's people can be motivated to do the work he has called them to do with only a temporary covering of the temple, how much more should we be willing to forsake our wants and desires and pick up what God has called us to do 
knowing as a member of this church, as a member of the body of the Christ, that you have been covered in full, that God has completely restored his relationship with you as he desired from the beginning through the person of Jesus. Able to access God at any time. Jesus is the new temple and he dwells within us. The fullness of God has come to dwell in our midst. We should rejoice in that, just as they rejoiced in Ezra. Only having a picture, now we have the whole picture. We should rejoice. Let us celebrate with joy, because through Jesus, the work is already done. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word, and the ability to look back on Jesus as the ultimate fulfillment of what you've been doing from the beginning. Your desire has always been to restore relationship with man. We were unable to do it on our own, and Lord, you came in and bridged the gap. You did the work for us, completed the work, finished the work, so that we could be in right standing before you. I pray, Father, for all of us here in this room that we would not take that for granted, but that we would rejoice knowing what you've done for us, and that we would be motivated and encouraged, like the people in Ezra, to continue the work that you called us to do not be preoccupied with the material things of this world, Lord, but to seek the spiritual things, the things that you have called us to. We ask for your presence. We ask for your provision as we continue to seek out your will for our lives. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.